Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Welcome, guys. On today's podcast, we have the co-founder of Gladly, Michael Wolf. Uh, Mike is not only a co-founder of, of uh, a large growing company, but he's also the portfolio advisor for Point9, as well as being a five-time founder, this being his fifth startup, Gladly, all of which have been high-growth companies. And so we're here today to hear his story and also hear about what he calls the startup operating system. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Thank you. Glad to be here. So we always like to start off with a little bit of background. I know that you studied CS both at a BS level and MS level at Stanford, but maybe you want to walk us through that first job that you had and how yeah. you transitioned from, from Stanford to that very first job. Okay. Well, I, I got out of Stanford at an interesting time. It was 1991. And that was really a point where the tech industry was nothing like what it is today. There were a couple startups out there but in the middle of a recession. So it wasn't something that everybody who graduated said, I want to go start a company like they do now. So what I did is I worked for Goldman Sachs for three years. I spent two years living in New York, living in Manhattan, working for Goldman, then spent a year here in London, which I love. And I love London. always love to come back here. So really glad to be here. And what happened is I really wanted to move back to San Francisco, which is where I live now. At the time, the internet and the web browser and Netscape and that, you know, that was really starting to happen. I got connected to a company called iPro, which was one of the first internet um, site auditing and measurement companies, a little bit like the 1994 version of Google Analytics. Mm. We were actually measuring advertising on the web before there was advertising on the web. Mm. Our founder had this vision that the web was going to be the next advertising medium, so we, we started building tools there. Mm-hmm. I was employee number two there, really high growth situation, spent a couple years there, left in 1997, and was employee number two and ran engineering for an enterprise software company called Kana. Now, Kana was taking on the helping companies that were really just getting on the web for the first time. If you go back to 95, 96, 97, a lot of companies had just put up their website and they were trying to handle inbound customer email, chat, knowledge bases, all the things you take for granted now. Mm-hmm. Back then, that question of how you handle customer support over the web was new. So I spent about four years there. That went through super high growth, got to about 1,200 employees, about a 200 million revenue run rate, went public in 1999, big market cap. So kind of lived through that, really that first big dot-com bubble feel really fortunate got to live through that. Just learned a ton, learned about high growth, learned about what's possible, really learned about how you can go from a company with just a few people in a conference room to something where you're selling software all over the world to giant companies. And once you've seen that happen and once you've lived through it because it's a lot of fun, you really get addicted to it and want to keep doing it, which is then why I continued to start companies after that. Excellent. So after Kana, you went to Vontu. You started Vontu. Yep. So Vontu was an information security company co-founded with Joseph Ancinelli, who was our VP of marketing at Kana and somebody who I worked with really well together. I was the technical co-founder. He was the business co-founder. At the time, I was an entrepreneur in residence at Benchmark Capital. And Benchmark had funded Kana. They then funded Vontu. They also funded my next company, which I'll talk about. And we really got started with a thesis that... Although it was great that we had, especially Akana and other companies, had helped companies get onto the internet and help them interact with their customers over the internet, 
the problem of data leaking from companies, data getting stolen from companies, identity theft, that problem was really starting to grow in the mid-2000s. Mm-hmm. So we started the company with a thesis that that was going to become a big and new software market that mm-hmm. companies were going to need to go in and help companies figure out where their data is exposed, how their data was leaving the network, what kind of risk that they were putting their consumers under. Mm-hmm. At the same time, a whole lot of privacy regulations like HIPAA and Gramm-Leach-Bliley, um, regulations which largely required companies to notify consumers when there was a breach, that kind of happened at the same time, a couple years after we started the company. And that was a situation where you're always betting on a market that either doesn't exist, but you're hoping it will exist and will start to grow, which is what we did there, versus a market that already exists and is already a large market, but a market where you think you could do something new and, and take a substantial share of it, mm-hmm. which is a little more with the newer company, which I'll talk about is doing. Mm-hmm. And I've done both and they can both work, but they definitely require some, some different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You, you you were a benchmark for a while, and mm-hmm. that was probably your first foray into sort of seeing how an investor yeah. thinks about companies. Do you yeah. want to make any comment about like, yeah, it, what, what angles you picked up from that experience? Yeah, I learned a lot from that experience. And, and I was there in 2002, and then after Vontu, Vontu got acquired by Symantec. So I spent a couple years at Symantec, mm-hmm. including a year as the CTO of the enterprise product group inside of Symantec. After I left Semantic, I went back to Benchmark as an entrepreneur in residence again, mm-hmm. so did that twice. And I would say the Benchmark experience, seeing how investors evaluate companies, meeting a lot of companies, mm-hmm. seeing the commonality that good companies have, really is useful as an entrepreneur. It really lets you see beyond just your own company. Mm-hmm. It really lets you see, here's the traits that good founders have in common, here's how those traits tend to lead to different outcomes because you mm-hmm. sort of meet the companies early, then you kind of see how they develop over mm-hmm. the next couple of years. Now, as I was, when I was at Symantec as the CTO of the enterprise group, I saw a different side to it, which is how do big companies like Symantec think about investing or acquiring startups mm-hmm. and what works and what doesn't work there. And I got involved in some interesting M&A there as well, mm-hmm. where once we integrated Vontu into Symantec and then got the merger integration successful, I helped with a couple other deals and a couple other merger integrations. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that experience of being an entrepreneur, helping sell a company, helping integrate into a larger company, then as a, from more of the venture perspective, seeing a lot of companies, what work and what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, that gave me a lot of insight, I think, into kind of other perspectives into where startups come from and why they work. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, both of those experiences reminded me why I love starting companies Mm -hmm. and why I've never really been tempted to go the venture route or the big company route. I'll always go back to founding companies, which is, which is what I've kept doing. And is that when Pipewise started? Yeah. So I started a company called Pipewise out of Benchmark Mm -hmm. and of my companies, that's the one company that really didn't work very well. Mm -hmm. It was a variety of reasons. It was, Going into a market which didn't quite exist yet, but which we believed would exist, which really turned out to be more of an SMB market, and we were trying to go after an enterprise segment, which really, I think to this day, still doesn't really exist. It was also just on a personal level, I love starting companies, and I think in that company I got in too much of a hurry. Mm. I really wanted to start a company, Benchmark was interested in funding whatever I did, and it was something where probably the idea wasn't vetted carefully enough. Mm didn't really have a founding team, probably should have waited and, and started the company with some co-founders. So it was kind of my, um, it was a little bit of a wake-up call in that when you're at a company that grows and really works, and I was at three that did, it's 
you're really lucky if you ever get into that situation because the number of ways things can go wrong versus the number of ways things things can go right, it's very, very humbling. And it um, caused me to do a couple things. One is I, I also was a little bit burned out at the time, which was probably a factor. So I took a couple years off, including spending a year living in Barcelona with my family. And I've always been good about taking breaks between companies. So work hard for a few years, take a year off, take six months off, then go back and do another company. Um, so I took a long break there, spent a year living in Europe. While I was in Europe, that's when I really got involved in Point Nine. became an advisor to some of their companies, spent some time with a fund, and got a little more familiar with startups in Europe specifically, which was really refreshing because the companies in Europe, it's, you know, it's not as developed of an ecosystem, obviously, as San Francisco is. So the companies tend to start off um, a little humbler. You know, they, they take longer to raise money, mm. more focused on their product, more focused on their customers, tends to be more of, or, more of an organic, authentic experience. Mm. The founders who start companies in Europe have found are, they're not just wanting to join the startup scene or wanting to go make a lot of money somewhere. Mm. There's a little more of a kind of old school entrepreneurship, mm. maybe the way it was in California, say 20 years ago where the people who manage to get a company started, especially if they manage to get it funded, mm -hmm. are people who really are in it, I think, for the right reasons. Yeah. So it's really refreshing to meet companies here and just see see what they're working on. That's great. And you mentioned something which I would like to get your thoughts on uh, regarding SMBs mm -hmm. and large, large customers versus small customers mm -hmm. and how that compares in the U.S. versus Europe yeah. um, before you go into the story of Gladly. Yeah. One of the things that I've seen companies struggle with is the idea of If you're an enterprise customer-driven uh, company, uh, do you start with medium, big, or small? Mm -hmm. And if you start with one, how do you start breaching into the, the next? You know, you have this crossing the chasm, Jeff Moore kind of uh, view that there's a beachhead, then you move on to it. But how have you seen uh, companies successfully navigate that? What's the best place to start? Yeah. And what are the pitfalls of trying to move up and down that stack? Yeah, it's... Um, I mean, there's, there's never going to be a great answer to that. You know, really just, it, it, I hate to say it depends, but it very much depends. I'll talk in a minute about the story of Gladly, which is a company that's really focused on large enterprise and large enterprise only. Mm -hmm. But I think a couple things have to be in place. I think that a lot of it comes down to the founding team. And if you have a founding team and a set of investors and a board who, who, who can give you the financing and give you the time, You have to want to sell to enterprise, either have experience doing it or at least have a lot of interest in building that experience quickly and hiring where you don't have the experience and raising enough money and having enough patience to do it. And that's very much the story of Gladly. You also have to be in a market where there is a large enterprise market. And there, is, there isn't always. Just because there's an SMB market in an industry doesn't mean that the enterprise segment is as developed or at least it's addressable, mm -hmm. you know, depending on competitors and depending on where the market is. So sometimes it's not a choice you get to make. Sometimes you can't simply take a product and say, oh, we think we're going to go up market. There has to be a market for what you're doing. You have to have a team that can do it and wants to do it. And I generally think that most teams are better off. Um, it's hard enough to start a company and get any traction. I think most companies are better focusing. They're better either going directly to large enterprise, which is what we're doing at Gladly, although there's a lot of downsides to that, which I'll explain. Or really optimizing for SMB and getting great at that market mm -hmm. and really having the team and the marketing and the product to really optimize for that. Mm -hmm. Then once you get several years in and you have the experience and you start to see some pull from, from the larger companies, you can go up market gradually. Mm -hmm. But trying to go after both at the same time, I think, is the one that usually doesn't work. And mm -hmm. it's hard to think of a lot of examples where that has. And going to even smaller enterprises than mm -hmm. SMB, you know, like SMB is kind of a funny one because... Mm -hmm. 
most of the time we think about companies that are small but not too small. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. there is this sort of long tail of companies that are self-provisioned customers yeah. where you might not have a Salesforce dedicated to it. What do you think of about companies mm-hmm. that want to target that? Is that a is that a difficult? I don't. You know, sell? again, it, I think it's difficult. Often, often. I mean, the word the thing you never want is to have an enterprise sales model where you have to go find companies, long sales cycles, expensive sales reps, mm-hmm. but not get paid for it. Mm-hmm. If so, if you're kind of in that twenty to $50,000 deal range, mm-hmm. unless you can really get that high velocity kind of inside sales machine going, you can often find that you don't have the velocity and the lots of transactions that you get with SMBs, mm-hmm. but you also don't have the $100,000 million deals you have with large mm-hmm. enterprise. So that can also be a hard, hard segment. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of it, it's probably driven a little more by pricing than it is by the size of the business. Mm-hmm. If you can do a $100,000 deal to a small business, to like say a 500-person, 1,000-person company, mm-hmm. because you're solving a huge problem for them and you're a product that's maybe adopted by a large number of people in the company, you can put together a sales team to go after 100000 and above deals pretty easily. It's really when you get below that, sometimes you the model doesn't quite work. And again, a lot of it depends on the, the market as well. You know, some markets, for example, in Vontu, we mostly sold to banks, insurance companies, kind of big global enterprises. Mm-hmm. So we had customers like Bank of America and Citicorp and mm-hmm. Goldman Sachs. So it was really almost entirely the large enterprise piece of um, enterprise mm-hmm. with a little bit of a little bit below, kind of been at mid-sized enterprise. Mm-hmm. But that's also because that's where the demand was, because mm-hmm. those were the folks who had the problem who would pay a lot for it. So to some degree, the market sometimes kind of gives you the answer. Sometimes you feel more pull from a certain part of the market than the other. Mm. And sometimes you just have to go to where the market is. On that on that point, internationalization is a question that some enterprise yeah. European startups have. You know, with uh, the market of the U.S. being so large, it's tempting yeah. to go from, let's say, the U.K. straight to the U.S. or from <clears throat> Germany straight to the U.S. Yeah. What, what are your, what's a general generic advice mm-hmm. that you have for companies thinking about going, you know, within their remit, let's say mm-hmm. it's their remits, enterprise sales, or let's say it's SMBs, yeah. within that remit, but expanding in, in, internationally, is is that too much of a, a leap, or is it something that yeah. they should do more locally? What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, and it's, you know, this is going to be a very, again, it depends a lot on the yeah. company and the market. I think that this is probably the place where U.S. companies have an advantage over, I think, a lot of European startups. Not just the fact that they're in the United States, but I think that if you think about, you know, take any market, take an enterprise software market, you know, take the CRM market, take the security market. When that com- when that market is early, if you think if you think you know five or ten years from now, who is going to win this market? Who, where's where are the really big players going to come from? Where is the Salesforce or the Workday or the Success Factors going to come from? It's almost always a company that did a ton of business in the U.S., got big, and then expanded overseas. There's not a lot of stories. There are probably some. Obviously, SAP is one, but that was that was a long time ago. And even they did a lot of uh, sold a lot in the U.S. There's not a lot of examples of people who start localized to you know Germany, Italy, UK, then expand in the U.S. There's some exceptions, probably maybe autonomy is an exception. There's probably a few more, but I tend to think if you work backwards from how do you build the biggest possible company, the answer is usually to go to the U.S. pretty early because in most markets, the biggest part of the market and the market that develops the quickest is in the U.S. If you look at you know look at Salesforce, look at kind of their first hundred or their first thousand company customers, 
it was all it was largely U.S. Partially, mm-hmm. part, my, part of it may have been because that's where Salesforce was, but mm-hmm. part of it also is that for a new market, new product, mm-hmm. kind of a something a little little more bleeding edge. In a lot of markets, the U.S. tends to come in a little bit earlier, but, especially but with think, enterprise. But I think most founders would agree with you there. I think the question is when. Yeah, like, yeah. How many staff? How much funding? How many people do you have in the yeah, company? Yeah, I, for- I sort of think as early as possible. I sort of think as soon as as soon as you can do it, as soon as you. Like what's the minimum funding you think you need to have to open up I, in the U.S.? I think it's probably five to ten million. Okay. I guess. I think you have to first of all feel like you have product market fit. Like you have a product that locally. Yeah, that you've proven people want it. You've proven people will mm-hmm. use it. So, I would say going to the U.S. immediately and trying to do kind of that really really early market validation is probably too early. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you have enough money where you can, you feel like you can. You have enough to invest in, say, a year or two of mm. U.S. presence before whatever U.S. presence means. It may mean having an office there. It may mm. mean having one person there. It may mean trying to cover it from Europe. But as soon as you feel like you can afford to probably invest at least a year, eighteen months before you get much out of it, but you're making that investment for the longer term, I think most companies are better off going early, just because I think most markets develop there quicker and grow quicker. But it's obviously going to depend on can you raise the funding to do it, and do you feel like you have the product and the team that's kind of ready to make that leap. Yeah. And do you, do you recommend that founders go as part of I, that launch? Um, they definitely need to spend a lot of time there. They definitely need, especially to the degree there's larger customers, partners, or if they have a presence in the United States, they're definitely going to spend time there. Mm. Um, you know, the, the models, if I think about the companies I know, mm. there's the model where the founders move to the U.S., which I think is probably... Certainly doing that too early would probably be too risky for a lot of com- mm-hmm. companies. You know, Zendesk is a well-known example of a company that after they really got product market fit and had a solid business, they really moved their headquarters to the U.S. That's harder to do now just because it's more expensive and more competitive than when they did it, but mm-hmm. that, that, that that's a possibility. I think the one that's more common is you um, put a sales team in the United States, probably New York or San Francisco, and that's where you run maybe sales, business development, maybe have some marketing folks there. The founders are certainly going to spend a lot of time in that office, but then you leave the headquarters and probably leave the engineering back office teams in the United mm-hmm. States. You also hear the the other the other uh, version of that, which is that you move headquarters to the U.S., but you leave engineering and a lot of the support functions here. Yeah. They can all work, and there's examples of all of those working. Yeah. But they're all going to be a lot of travel for the founders and the need to raise more money, take a little bit more risk. And a lot of communication. So which brings me to (laughs) one of the key things that we wanted to talk about today, which is your model of the startup operating system. Mm -hmm. And I think this idea of cross-border also brings the challenge of uh, cadence of communication. And that's one of the key things of the startup operating system. And I hope that maybe towards the end of of this bit, we can learn a little bit more about Gladly and how you're implementing it. So why don't we... um, I'm going to hand it over to you. Mm-hmm. Just pretend the next 10 minutes I'm a student easily. Just <laughs> yeah, yeah. go straight through um, the the kind of the, the slides mentally, uh, visually. <laughs> we can, maybe we can share the slides that you have uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. as part of the podcast notes. But just walk us through it. Yeah, and I... And, um so operating system, I have to I have to give Jack Welch credit for this. When you know, Jack Welch, back when he was kind of the best known CEO in the world, kind of back in the, in the early two thousands, he talked a lot about the operating system they had at General Electric, kind of the way they plan, the way they train, the way they run the company, and it made me realize that 
for the, my companies as well as other well-run companies I've seen, they tend to do a lot of things the same way, or at least they do a lot of things that are based off certain principles. And the principles are ones I think that no startup founder would disagree with. I think the question is always, you know, putting those principles into action. And the first principle is always about just getting the best people at a company. So any startup, whether you're just getting started or whether you're trying to get to 50, 100 people, they'll always talk about talent as being the most difficult thing. How do you get great people to join the company? How do you get them to stay? How do you get them to be excited about what they're doing? Then there's... Are those people actually getting a lot of work done? Are they being productive? Are they working well together? Then there are then there is, are those people working on the right things? Meaning you have a plan for the company. Is everybody working on that plan? And as the plan changes or as new information comes in, how good are you at getting that information in, acting on it, and changing the plan if you need to? So you know, getting the best people, having them work well together, and having them work on the right things. It sounds really simple. But it's really, really hard to do. And when people talk about execution, you, you can't go anywhere without hearing about execution is more important than ideas. It's all about execution. Everybody should focus on startup execution. It's hard to know, especially if you haven't been in a high growth company, what does execution actually mean? You know, what does a company look like when it's executing? And I would argue it's those three things, having great people working on the right things, working well together. And I think the way you run your company and this is true probably starting at five or 10 people, and then certainly as you get bigger and you have multiple people to coordinate with, is how do you organize the company? If you really believe those are the most important things, which I think most people would, how do you organize the company and run the company such that that's actually what you're optimizing for? So, so a few examples. There's, um, and I, First of all, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about how we do things at Gladly. We did a lot of this at Vontu as well. And I have to give a lot of credit to my co-founder, Joseph, who put a lot of this in place with our head of HR, Margie, who's incredible in terms of thinking about people and execution and recruiting. We just have a great team at my company and all my previous companies that really helped my thinking on this. So this is something I invented. This is something I've observed from good companies. First of all, um, there's this idea of transparency, which is, does everybody at the company have the information that's relevant? Do they know everything about the market, the product, the plans for the company, how much cash is in the bank? What are the most important milestones and KPIs you need to make? Is that information shared as soon as, you know, as soon as it's available? For example, if somebody at Gladly goes to a meeting, hears something from a customer about how maybe a competitor is pitching a new product or how they're positioning against us, our ability to take information like that, process it, share it with everybody, get it back out so the next person who goes into a customer meeting and has that same objection mm -hmm. knows how to handle it. That metabolism of learning and not just learning and not the founders or the executives learning, but the entire company mm -hmm. learning, that's a huge, first of all, it's a great predictor of are you working on the right things? Are you working well together? Like I talked about earlier, but it's also a huge contributor to are you, are you bringing in the best people? Really good people want to work at a place where they're trusted and where they're learning quickly. Mm -hmm. So we do things like we have a company meeting every week where we talk all about what's going on. We share the plans. We hear stories from different departments. We hear about what the customers are doing. We have all of our information on like public file shares and Slack groups and places where everybody has access to it. We, have, we focus a lot on orientation and training. We, we get together every week and do kind of training classes on a topic or how the company does something. 
So that focus on information, on sharing information, on transparency, on on uh, learning, that's kind of the first pillar I think about is transparency. The second thing I've noticed, and when we do this or when other companies do this, it goes well, is what I think of as cadence. It's kind of that, what are the things that happen at the company regularly where there are certain rituals, certain habits, certain practices that you do on a certain pattern, which tend to ensure that certain things happen, certain discussions happen, certain decisions happen. And a lot of times it's just as simple as what's your meeting cadence. So for example, we have a management meeting every Monday, we have a company meeting every Friday, we have a release every week, we have a uh, kind of a replanning session that's about every quarter where we come up with a new plan for the company, talk to the board about it, to roll it out the week after. We have certain... Um, you know, training events that happen every week. We Every department has their own meeting every week. We kind of, um, you know, we have a forecast call where we sit down and talk about all the customers. We share information about that. We have, you know, recruiting meeting every week where we share what we've learned about recruiting. So there's a cadence of getting people together, sharing what you've learned, taking the time to train each other, taking the time to ask, are our assumptions or our plans valid still? And then constantly rolling that information into the next meeting, into the next week, including one-on-ones. I'm a real believer that the sitting down with the people who work for you, sitting down with your peers, really having those one-on-one conversations where you take the time to go deep and ask, are things working? Do you understand the plan? Do you have any feedback for me? Getting into those habits of people coming together a few times a week and really just asking, is what we're doing working? What are we learning from each other? That It looks different at every company, but a lot of companies get so busy that they forget to talk to each other. And then a few weeks later, you realize that people are working on the wrong thing or people are feeling disconnected or they feel like maybe they don't trust their management because they haven't heard certain things from management or don't know what's going on. So I think a lot about cadence. And the third one is just the, the actual plan that the company is operating off of, mm. which is... A few high-level goals around, it might be a customer number, a booking number, it might be a usage number, some supporting goals in terms of what does that what does that imply around product goals, marketing goals, sales goals, obviously the financial goals in terms of how much are we burning, who are we hiring, what's our revenue ramp, when do we need to raise more money. I think writing that plan down, sharing it with the whole company, using it to guide people's decisions and actions. And back to the point of transparency, everybody at a startup should know the plan. This is not kind of a board thing where you have a secret spreadsheet you share with your board. Other than, say, individual salaries and sort of personal confidential things, really having the whole company operating off of the knowledge and the and op, having the whole company operate off the same information that the executives and even the board has first of all, makes it more likely that what I talked about earlier, that people are working on the right things happens because instead of waiting for the executives to tell them what the right things are, they know what the right things are. Also, back to the initial goal of how do you get the best people to join your company and stay, again, the best people want to feel trusted and they want to feel informed. They want to, some of them want to get promotions or they want to learn how to do a new job. Some of them might want to start their own company someday. And the way to get people like that to join your company and stay is to make sure they're, they feel trusted and they have the information they need to do their job and they have the information they need to train themselves on what their next career move is because someday they're going to leave you. 
And when they do, you want them to move on to something bigger and better. Yeah. So the more that you um, are in- including people and trusting people, that, that's always going to go a long way. That's great. So we've broken it down into three core parts, transparency, cadence, and plan. And uh, when, when we first met, you had a couple of sample cadences. You had mm-hmm. one that was weekly, one that was quarterly, and some of the things that happened during that. But one of the interesting things that you brought up was the, the, what, what certain things indicate something wrong within yeah. your, your cadence or your process or your planning. For example, I think you mentioned something. If it takes too long for people to confer on something, then it means things slow down too much. Yeah, yeah. And maybe you can walk us through where you've seen this operating system go wrong. Yeah. So this is, and, and by the way, Across I'm all three. Yeah. When I'm talking about what I've seen work, I'm not at all implying that you know our company is running at 100. percent Yeah. <laughs> There's always disconnects and things that aren't quite working. And part of the goal of having a good operating for your system for your company is to identify those things early and then adjust when you see them. Mm. And I think a few things that um, you know, the, the ultimate is if you're not making your plan, if you're not making those top level goals mm-hmm. around, you know, it might be churn, it might be users, it might be revenue, whatever the, the main top line business goals are. Mm. That's certainly an indication that something's going wrong. And that's ultimately, you know, if, if this were a game, that would be the score on the scoreboard. Mm. So that's, that's what you're ultimately trying to get is, is the business growing and are you making your goals? But that's really a lagging indicator. You see things a lot earlier that will often indicate that that's, that you're going to go wrong on the plan. Mm-hmm. So I think that one thing is the speed of decision making. And this is something where you can really just ask the people who work for you, how hard do you feel like it is to get something done here or to get a decision made? And a lot of times you'll hear things like, I don't know how decisions are made here. Or you'll hear things like, we made a change in the business, but I never, I don't understand why we did that. That didn't seem right to me. Or you might just hear, wow, you know, it takes me a month to make a decision because I have to ask these people. This person was traveling. They didn't get back to me. So the, that the speed of decision making is, first of all, kind of the metabolism of your business in terms of how quickly you're moving forward and how quickly you're getting things done. It also has a very high predictor in terms of employee churn because if people, especially if they come to a startup where there's an expectation that they can have a little bit less red tape and frustration mm-hmm. that they might at a bigger company, if they feel like it's hard to get things done or that they're not in control of their work because they're waiting for other people to make decisions, mm-hmm. that's a really big one. And there's some, and there's some things you can do around making sure that decisions don't end up getting made by executives, you know, encourage, encourage individual team members to make decisions, be clear around which decisions are owned by which people. So people don't feel like they have to bump everything up to the executive team or that they have to come to some monthly planning meeting or something like that to make a change. So as much as people are empowered to make their own decisions and not have to get lots of feedback or bump everything up to the executives, Mm -hmm. That's a really important thing, and that's something we've spent a lot of time within my company. Hmm. So let's walk. Let's walk through it gladly now. Mm-hmm. What's the What's the situation with with implementing yeah. the furthest version, mm-hmm. the latest version of mm-hmm. Mojave version? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you say it? Mojave or Mojave? Mojave, right? Mojave. Yeah, Mojave. <laughs> I always get that wrong. Yeah. So what's the Mojave version of of the the startup operating system in Gladly? Yeah. So. Um, you know, it changes, first of all. And as, and as a company grows, it changes. And in particular, when you're small, when you have five or ten people, 
you really can mostly sit around a table and just have a conversation with everybody about what's working, what's not working. So it's not as formal. When you get to kind of where you have a sales team, a marketing team, an engineering team, you know, fully staffed executive team, then the same principles apply to both, but the actual practices become a little more rigorous. So, you know, a few things that we do are we have a lot of sales folks who are out in the field. We have a lot of folks on the East Coast. We have a couple of people who work remotely. So once a quarter, we get the entire company together, including the people who are from working out of other offices. We go really deep on a go-to-market training where we take all the sales and marketing and customer success people, refresh them on the latest product information. We talk about we talk about competition. We share lots of stories from the field in terms of what's working and what's not working. We do a team building event where we get the whole company together and do a service project or something like that. So we have a quarterly cadence of getting the company together, asking how the quarter went, asking how next quarter is going to go. We do something we call the State of the Union, where our CEO, Joseph, will get up and talk about what's going on at the business and what we've learned and what we're doing. We'll talk about the next quarter's plan. So we'll talk about the revenue goal, how many people are trying to hire, and some of the some of the key indicators. So we do that quarterly. However, during the quarter, kind of every week, there's lots of mini trainings. So we don't save our training and our mm. get-together and our celebration for once a quarter. It's just that that quarterly cadence of you set a goal, you work really hard for a quarter to make the goal, you see if you've made the goal or not, you replan for the next quarter, you get people together, you um, celebrate, you talk about what's working, what's not working. That quarterly cadence, I think, works really well for a startup. Quarterly, not for the small things, but quarterly for the big kind mm-hmm. of strategic overarching things. Because quarterly is long enough that you have a chance to see if your assumptions and if your strategy is working. Mm-hmm. So you set a goal at the beginning of the quarter, and then you run, run the quarter and see if it's working. But it's also short enough that you can make lots of adjustments along mm-hmm. the way. And you can even make mid-quarter adjustments if, for example, you see that you're, gonna, you're going to overachieve or underachieve on your targets. You might make some adjustments in the middle of the quarter. But about quarterly for the really big things is about right. I think what you don't want to do is sometimes you'll see somebody who comes out of a public company or comes from a bigger company Mm -hmm. who wants to set annual goals. They want to say, we're going to set a target for this year, work all year to make them, then at the end of the year we'll evaluate. A year is way too long for a startup. Things change almost weekly at a startup. So quarterly cadence for the big things is something that we've, I think, done a good job. Mm. Uh, on, On a weekly cycle... It's really a, you know, a weekly product planning meeting, a weekly release. We do a weekly forecast call. We do certain things where, you know, certain people will go to those meetings and they'll take information back to their groups or share things directly. So there's usually an exec staff meeting every week, departmental meetings, release, forecast call. And it's not the meetings as much. And you certainly don't want a culture where it's all about meetings. It's more of a what is actually happening in those meetings what training is happening where you're sharing what worked and what doesn't didn't work with each other. Yeah. What kind of uh, motivation are you getting from those meetings? It's yeah. really fun to go to the forecast call, for example, hear what's working, hear what's not working. The engineers love to come to those calls. Then they can go back and maybe make some adjustments to their plan based on some things they heard. Yeah. There's a lot of camaraderie there because you get people in different departments working together. It's going to be different for every company, but trying some things, optimizing for them, really seeing what works and what doesn't work, Mm. 
keep the meetings to a minimum. If you just keep piling on meetings, yeah. that's usually not the right thing. It's usually having a few key meetings that happen every week with a shared understanding of what's coming out of those meetings. Yeah. No, that, that's very useful. And, and, you know, hopefully we can share some of these so you can yeah. visualize kind of what, what Michael has said here, which is like a, a virtuous circle of, of this cadence, weekly cadence. So Gladly is one of those uh, companies that, you know, addresses a lot of the, the customer service uh, issues of, of companies. Maybe you can walk us through why why start that and, mm-hmm. and kind of what it is. Yeah. We're doing something pretty unusual at Gladly, which most startups either aren't crazy enough to do or they don't want to do, which is to go at, go into a large enterprise market, one that is already fairly competitive, but where there hasn't been a lot of innovation for a long time. Namely, we sell customer service software to big retailers, banks, hotels, airlines, big B2C businesses who are supporting lots and lots of consumers directly. So if you've ever picked up the phone and called your airline, JetBlue is one of our customers, for example. Airlines are a great target for us. Or if you've ever sent them an email or gone on Twitter and had an interaction with a customer, you probably didn't have a great experience as a consumer with a lot of companies. And it's not that companies don't want to do a great job with customer service. It's that most of them are working off of a lot of really old legacy software. In a lot of cases, for example, they have a different system handling phone interaction, different one doing social, different one doing email. So what we're doing is bringing all those channels into one platform, moving it into the cloud, and making it much more consumer-centric. So we like to say um, conversations, not cases, meaning when a consumer contacts a brand, they want to have a conversation. They don't want to get assigned a case number that then they have to call and give their case number and then talk to somebody who probably is a different person than they talked to the first time and doesn't have the background of why they, why they, um, why they contacted the company. So we're really helping these companies reinvent their contact center and reinvent how they talk to customers. The way we're doing it is to go directly into large enterprise. We're not, you know, back to the earlier question, we're not going to sell it to smaller businesses and spend years and years you know, honing our strategy, then going up market. We really want to start selling to large enterprise mm-hmm. and to leading brands. And that's meant more time up front in terms of raising some more money, building an enterprise-ready product, building an enterprise-grade sales and marketing team. But now that we're out and selling, it's, it's working beautifully. and It's a really fun market. And one of, the, one of the things that we love to do is my second company I talked about earlier, Kana, was really a 20-year-old version of what we're doing today, meaning we were handling that first generation of companies getting online. So we've actually gone into a lot of companies that still use that product 20 years later, and as well as a lot of other platforms that are 15, 20 years old, and replacing what we sold them 20 years ago with the latest and greatest thing we have now, which is all channels in one platform, all in the cloud. And on the one hand, it's a great strategy, but on the other hand, it makes me feel really old to go to go yeah. replace a product that we built in the '90s. Hey, that's cool. You know, you at least know your customer quite <laughs> exactly. well, and they know us. So we always like to end with a couple of fun questions. Mm-hmm. If you had to be a Marvel comic superhero, <laughs> which one would you pick, and why? Oh gosh, I think it would probably be um, Doctor Xavier, just because. The kind of knowing a lot and being able to connect the dots and having like a view of everything going on around you, um, that's always a skill that I've really valued. And if I had a superhero or a superpower, I think that would I'd want that one to be it. That'd be pretty cool. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that would be a good one. Um, in a similar vein, if, if you could now fast forward in the future, like mm-hmm. Xavier could do, and look back to modern day, yeah. what would we look 
back on today as something that, that is just inconceivable. The way that we look back now on history and think slavery was inconceivable. Yeah, what, yeah. what do you think is going on today that is inconceivable? If I was going to be political, I'd probably go on about climate change. I think if I wanted to stick to the business and startup world, I think that a lot of people are doing what, um, what I think I've heard called uh, bullshit jobs, meaning people who have jobs where 90% of the time that they're spending they're actually not accomplishing anything and they're probably not even learning very much or moving the ball forward in any way. So I think the amount of wasted time and wasted effort in the work world and, and obviously startups are in a great position to help people work smarter on more important things. When I even look at our customers and see how much time, for example, our customers spend fighting their software instead of actually helping customers, it makes me cringe sometimes. So I think that we're all going to be coming home from work in 20 years feeling much more like we got a lot done that day and not feeling like we're just, uh, you know, fighting politics and fighting software. Fighting UI. Well, thanks so much for that, Michael. It's been super eye-opening and and really love the, the, the model of the startup operating system. Guys, look in the show notes for the slide deck that Michael will share with us so that you can follow through uh, the three points that he mentioned. And until next time, bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.